Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're talking about protein, all things protein-related. Specifically, though, how protein fits into people's lifestyles for healthy weight loss, for metabolic health, for body composition, and also for health span versus longevity. And we have a real treat because we're joined by three of our experts here at Diet Doctor, Adele Height, Francisca Spritzler, and the man himself, Dr. Andreas Einfeld, to talk about what the science says and what their personal experiences and their clinical experience says about the importance of protein. And it's surprising that protein is pretty controversial in some in some spheres. I mean, how much is too much? How much is too little? Are there dangers to eating too much protein? Because there certainly can be dangers to eating too little. And how does protein fit into a low-carb or a keto diet or any diet for that matter to help us find sustainable, healthy, long-term weight loss and metabolic health, because that's what it's about. It's not just about any type of weight loss, and it's not about weight loss for tomorrow, next week, or next month. It's about for a lifetime, and protein plays a critical role. So let's get into these interviews with these three experts to go through this masterclass on protein and how you can use protein to help you on your health journey. Let's hear from Adele Height. Now, Adele is a senior writer at Diet Doctor, but she's been involved in low-carb nutrition since 2006 when she started working with Dr. Eric Westman at Duke University, and she's kept up her involvement in low-carb nutrition for well over a decade. She's a registered dietitian. She has a master's degree in public health and a PhD in rhetoric and communication with a big focus on the dietary guidelines. So she is very well qualified to talk about low-carb protein and fat, both from a science and a practical standpoint. She has some very good views about the role of the macronutrients, about the balance of a well-formulated keto diet, and about the words we use, making sure that we're saying what we mean and we mean what we say, which can be very important so that the communication is accurate and we don't get we don't get lost or make the wrong assumptions about what we're talking about or what our goals are. So let's hear what Adele has to say about all this. So Adele, I want to talk to you about protein and specifically protein as it fits into a low-carb diet because so often low-carb or keto diets are called low-carb, high-fat diets. Well, what's missing in that equation is protein. So give us your thoughts about the role of protein in what we call an you know, appropriately uh, manufactured or, well, or well-designed keto diet. Um, I think protein is the most important thing after carbohydrate reduction. Obviously with low carb, it's got to be low carb, right? So, um, and, and certainly we are driven to consume protein. So I don't think that this idea that somehow we are walking around protein deficient makes a lot of sense. Um, and we certainly overconsume carbohydrates. So in a low-carb diet, yes, first you reduce the carbs. But then jumping over protein to focus on fat leaves out the most important macronutrient that we have. When I say that people are probably not protein deficient, um, that's not to say that I think that most people are walking around getting the amount of protein that's actually most beneficial for them. So I do think that people under-eat protein um, relative to carbohydrate in a standard American diet and relative to fat. So we have high consumption of carbs, high consumption of fat, and a barely adequate consumption of protein, enough protein to get us 
<laughs> through the day to keep us from being, um, you know, starving. Um, but I do think that when people start to worry about their weight and focus on diets, that yeah, there's this sort of struggle between, um, you know, high carb, low fat, or low carb, high fat, and then protein gets left out of the equation altogether. Yeah. So you made a good point about being protein deficient versus sort of the adequate amount of protein for health. And those are two different things. So if you look yes. at the RDA, the, um, the 0.8 grams per kilogram of protein, that's like to prevent protein deficiencies. So when right. you see that, what does your brain say? Okay, but this is where we want to go for adequate protein. For adequate protein, I so immediately just double that number. The the if you read through the um, the macronutrient report that the um, that they put out back in two thousand five, was it the National the uh, Food and Nutrition Board at the Institute of Medicine? They know that there's no good way to calculate what's optimal, right? And of course, optimal always brings the problematic optimal for what. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about protein needs, we're just talking about preventing deficiencies, just like a vitamin C deficiency or vitamin D deficiency that tells you how essential um, protein is to our diet. It, it's central to our diet in the way that um, vitamins and minerals are in that when it goes too low, you do have a disease of deficiency, which you're not going to have with carbohydrate and which would take you a long time to get with fat. We do have um, requirements for essential fatty acids, but they're, they're very small and it would take you a really long time to get there. But protein is not that way. And so the whole idea and, and um, you know, your readers, your, our listeners may or may not be familiar with the protein leverage hypothesis, but the protein leverage hypothesis says that, that creatures, mammals and humans are included, um, will eat enough protein to get what they need, even if it means overeating calories. So if your diet has a low protein density, in other words, there's a low amount of protein per calorie, that you'll just keep eating calories until you get the protein you need, which means that very few of us are going to walk around under eating protein, right? <laughs> because we're surrounded by food that has protein in it, and we just keep eating it till we get the protein we need. So when people say, oh, Americans get plenty of protein, they get more than enough protein, that's not the point. Yes, of course we get enough protein. We're driven to eat protein. Do we get the protein that we need without exceeding our calorie limit dramatically? That's the question. And the answer is no, we don't. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good point because when you talk about sort of percentage of calories or you talk about absolute grams, if you're eating, you know, 3,000 calories instead of the 2000 calories that your body needs, your percentage of protein might seem low, but you're still getting enough absolute protein. But what you really want is what you're saying is reduce those calories by maintaining the same amount of protein. So your percentage of protein goes up, but you get it in fewer calories, basically. Exactly. And this is, so um, I, have, I have some good friends in agriculture, and this is a well-known phenomenon when you're raising cattle. If you want to fatten <laughs> your your cattle, you reduce the percentage of protein in the feed, and then they will eat more because they'll eat more calories because you they want to get that protein and they'll automatically do it. You don't have to do anything else but lower the percentage of protein in the feed and vice versa. If you need them to lean out, you increase the protein, they'll eat fewer calories, ta-da, 
you've got it. And humans are not that different in term, at least in terms of our desire to get this incredibly important nutrient in our diet. Yeah. So protein is important for so many reasons that, that we've talked about on the, on the podcast many times before for maintaining lean muscle mass, for satiety, which we'll talk more about. Uh, and it's just an essential nutrient. We need the the amino acids and, and so many other functions. But um, what about fat? And so does fat also play a role in a low-carb diet? I mean, it it's a low-carb, high-fat diet is sort of what it's usually called. So it must play a role and we can't discount the experience of people who have lowered their carbs and increased their fat and had tremendous success. So what is the role of fat in a low-carb diet and what are some of the pitfalls we get into with fat? Well, so the the idea that a diet is low-carb and high-fat, those are relative terms relative you know, to what? So, so we all know that when people go from 300 grams of carbohydrate a day to 20 grams of carbohydrate a day, that's a big switch for them. But do we really know what's going on with the fat. We don't. The, the, the fact of the matter is we don't. People may feel like they're eating more fat because that fat doesn't come with the carbohydrates, or maybe they were truly limiting their fat before. Um, but sort of giving yourself the mental permission to eat things like bacon or full-fat sour cream or cream in your coffee um, it may change your mindset about fat, but we really don't know how much it changes your absolute intake of fat. And actually, when we look at some of the studies that are um, that that we rely on to show people that a low carb diet works for weight loss, like the Gardner A to Z study, the Shea study um, that compared low fat Mediterranean and low carb, what we find is that while intake of fat in absolute amounts goes up a little bit at the very, very beginning of the diet, it actually comes back down again quite quickly. And this is how people end up eating fewer calories over time. So the, the two levers at work in a low-carb diet um, are both the lowering of the carbs, but for most people over time, there's a lowering of calories as well for a number of reasons. Um, and, and you'll get into that, I think, with Francisca and satiety and things like that about, about why this happens. When we're told, you can eat as much as you want of these foods, as long as they're not carbohydrate, why it is that people actually eat less and feel more full. Because um, that's one of the little paradoxes of, of low-carb diets. Yeah. So the permission to eat fat, I think, is really important. Um, I think it's um, so that people don't feel like they're you know, stuck with virtually nothing to eat except, you know, chicken breasts and steamed broccoli. Um, it's important for flavoring our food. Food tastes better when it has fat in it. And it does provide calories. And I know that we don't talk about calories a lot, but you do have to have calories. Calories matter on both ends of the spectrum. You can have too many, but you can also have too few. And if you're dieting, we know that we don't want chronic caloric restriction past the point where your metabolism is going, I can't do this anymore. I need to start shutting things down. Um, but keeping the protein intake up and having enough calories so that your body isn't struggling for them is important when you're trying to lose weight. So what sort of pitfalls though do we run into with fat if we start saying just, you know, eat more fat, add more fat because you need to on this diet? Um, there's, there's a couple of pitfalls. One is magical thinking around fat. 
Um, so we transfer this idea that we had in low fat days that carbs can't make you fat. You can eat as much as you want of them. You know, the bottom of the period, they can't possibly make you fat. And we take that magical thinking and we put it on fat. Fat can't make you fat. doesn't matter how much you eat. As long as your insulin is low because you're not eating carbs, then fat can't possibly cause you any ill health effects. And that's just simply not true. Calories can be overeaten. Your body has to figure out what to do with those calories. You never are at zero insulin levels. That would be a bad thing. So there's always insulin working in the background, and insulin will help you store extra energy, even if that energy comes from fat. And even if you're not getting glucose or insulin spikes from eating carbohydrate. So it's easy to overeat fat because it tastes good mm -hmm. and because there's a lot of calories per gram. So it, there's a lot of energy and a little bit of fat. And when we start thinking of fat as a free food and that it can't possibly really add to a weight problem or an insulin resistance problem, it's easy to begin to think that it doesn't matter how much butter I put on my broccoli or how much cream I add to my coffee. And um, especially if you're not a big person, if you're not six, seven, like Andreas, <laughs> um, those calories can add up quickly. And if you're older, if you're female, if you've lost muscle mass over the years from, from dieting, yo-yo dieting, especially, um, you may find that you, while you lose weight at first, because you've lowered your carbs so your body can access fat and you've lowered your calories somewhat because of other satiety factors involved in a low-carb diet, over time, you're adding fat and those calories are going up and you're not losing weight anymore. Yeah. So it's really an interesting concept about the role of fat. And like you said, it may not be such a, a tremendous absolute increase in fat, but sort of change in how the fat, how we eat the fat. Like we don't get it from the pizza and the chips and the donuts, but now we add in oils and butter and cream. So it feels different because it's more of like an active process rather than just having it passive with our foods. And it's important to talk about that it's okay to eat the fat. You're allowed to eat the fat, but if you take that too far, then you're adding extra calories and any caloric excess, even if it's fat, can cause weight gain, like you said. So I think that was, that's a sort of a good summary of that. But can there still be a role for people to put butter in their coffee or to eat fat bombs or to uh, purposely go out of their way to get fat? I mean, can there still be a role for that in a low-carb diet? I think that if that's what you need to, to make the transition, um, that it's important, but it can't be at the expense of protein. Uh, I think that's the real problem is that if you're filling up on fat, or you're focused on, am I getting enough fat? Before you worry about, are you getting enough protein? Then that's actually going to um, undermine your your efforts and your um, path to success in the long run, yeah. because of all of those reasons that we've talked about that you need protein. Um, fat actually, you know, I don't I don't want to be negative about fat. I love fat, but it doesn't <laughs> add much nutritionally. When we talk about empty calories of sugars and starches, well, fat is empty calories too, and it's a lot of empty calories. It's a lot of empty calories in a small package. Um, although there are some fats like butter, which do uh, contribute, you know, vitamin A to to your nutritional profile, and um, but other than that, there's just not a lot of nutrition in most fat. 
Yeah, it's like a lot of things. It seems like maybe the pendulum just swung a little too much. You know, saying you can eat low-fat, high-carb, the pendulum swung way too much to the high-carbs. And saying eating low-carb, high-fat, maybe the pendulum has swung too far to the high-fat side for some people. And saying instead of eating an 80% fat diet, eat a 60% fat diet. It's still a relatively high-fat diet, um, but lower than maybe what some people are doing. So I think that that's sort of just a, a different way to sort of think about it, sort of how you're saying. Right, so, so let's get back to protein, though, for a second. So there's also a concern that on a low-carb diet, you can eat too much protein. This concept of gluconeogenesis, protein can be converted to glucose um, and protein can cause in, a rise in insulin, whereas fat doesn't. So because of that role of insulin, um, fat sort of got in the past where there's been a little concern of protein that we need to dial it down to make sure we're not interfering with ketosis. So how do you address that, those concerns? Well, I think we you have to go back and look at what ketosis really is. And, and I think that there's there's a little bit of magical thinking around the idea of ketosis too, which is that ketosis creates a state in your body that allows all of these other things to happen, whereas really the ketone production is at the end. It's the outcome of all of the good things. So when you reduce your carbohydrates, you reduce your glucose um, that's coming in, that reduces your insulin levels. That allows your body to now burn fat, access stored fat, and that's what produces ketones. It's not the ketones driving the process. The ketones are the outcome of the process. So when you eat protein, again, you're not eating protein against a zero insulin level background. You've already got some insulin in there, and that's a good thing because that protein that you need to help build muscle, to help build bone, is, is driven to some degree by the hormonal effects of the insulin glucagon balance. So if your insulin goes up a little bit when you eat protein, we consider that a good thing. That's not, it's not going up the way that carbs would make it go up. It's not going to go up and stay up for an extended period of time. It's going to go up enough to let your body access those amino acids and let them put them to use. Um, and this idea that you're somehow in some sort of weird nebulous energy state where you're you've you're in ketosis, but now you've eaten protein, and so you're out of ketosis, and now your body doesn't know where to get its energy from. Your body's not that stupid. Um, if you're making, you got protein. Half of those amino acids are ketogenic. Half of them are, are gluconeogenic. Um, glucogenic. Your body's going to figure out where to get its energy from. Um, the the biggest problem that you put your body in is when chronic hyperinsulinemia um, keeps your body from accessing fat stores, but you're trying to diet. So you're not putting any food in and you're not getting any fat out. Yeah, that's when your body's in trouble, but protein isn't going to do that to you. Yeah, great differentiation. A, a, a normal physiologic slight rise in insulin from protein is far different from the chronic hyperinsulinemia that we see in the standard American diet, high carbohydrate diets, or high carb and fat diets combined. So that's a great point. Now, what about this concept though of optimal ketosis, that you want your ketones at a certain level? You know, nutritional ketosis is defined as 0.5 millimoles per liter, but some, and actually at Diet Doctor, we used to have this on our website, that optimal ketosis is between 1.5 and three for some people. At Diet Doctor, we've sort of backed away and taken that away. But tell us about your thoughts about why that matters or doesn't matter, your level of ketones. 
So the anytime you hear the word optimal, this is to everyone out there, you should ask yourself optimal for what? Because you're always optimizing for an end. So is there an optimal level of ketosis for weight loss? Well, no, because that's the outcome. The ketone production is the outcome of your body burning fat. So it's not the ketone level that's driving the fat loss. It's the fact that you're losing fat that allows you to end up with ketones. So the idea that you want to drive your ketone level up by eating more dietary fat so that you can burn fat, but then you're bypassing your body's stores of fat, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. However, there may be other reasons, other conditions, epilepsy is the classic one, where you do want a high level of ketones circulating in the blood because it's an alternate fuel for your brain. So there are, there are situations where production of ketones is the outcome that you're looking for, in which case, yeah, maybe adding dietary fat is important to the level where you're burning dietary fat as well as body fat to get a level of ketones that's optimal for the treatment of epilepsy. But if the health goal that you're looking at is weight loss, you want two things. You want to be able to access the body fat and then you want to burn it. You access the body fat by lowering carbs and lowering insulin levels, not by raising ketone levels. And then you burn the body fat and that's where your ketones come from. Yeah, I think that's a great, that, such a great statement. Anytime you hear the word optimal, optimal for what? And that, that's such a good take-home message right there. And when it comes to weight loss, great description about how ketones are part of the process, but not the driver in the process. That's good. So when when people hear the advice that, you know, they've been doing a keto diet or a low-carb diet for a while and seen some good success with it, and then they hear this advice that maybe they should raise their proteins and lower their fat, how do you think, what, what roadblocks do you think people will come across and what challenges will they have in, in, in following that advice? Well, first of all, they're happy doing what they're doing um, because it's been successful for them. So if people are happy doing what they're doing and they're still experiencing success, then they should just keep doing what they're doing. Um, this was the problem that we ran into the dietary guidelines, you know, 50 years ago. Is people were not... Um, metabolically ill or obese at that point, and then we told them to change their diets, and then that didn't work. So if if you're experiencing success with the way that you do low carb or keto, then keep doing it. I would check in and make sure that you're getting um, adequate amount of protein, but you could probably figure that out just from if you're active. You know, do you have the strength that you've always had? Do you have the stamina that you've always had? If you're an older female, are your bones still in good shape? Are your joints still in good shape? This is how you'll know that you're not getting adequate protein over time. But the other way that you'll know that you might need to shift your focus is if you have an extended stall that you can't break um, by you know, being more conscious of carb creep or calorie creep or other things like that, then that may be a problem of too many calories coming in from fat and not enough attention paid to protein. So I, I think that if you're enjoying what you're doing and you're enjoying your diet, keep doing what you're doing. But remember that bodies change over time. Your body is going to adjust to accommodate to the environment that you give it, which includes diet. And um, it, your body may change to the point where you need to now think about something a little differently. 
Yeah. And that's actually a good point about bodies changing because protein requirements also change, you know, from a, a kid and an adolescent to a 20, 30, 40 year old to a 50, 60, 70 year old protein needs change as well. Um, so do you see that people sort of get in a rut with the amount of protein they eat and maybe don't adjust it based on, on their needs and their, how their body changes? Yeah, I think this is actually a real problem for women, especially older women. Um, I think that older women think if they eat two eggs for breakfast, they have just consumed gobs of protein food and, and they're, you know, probably good for that meal, if not for the entire day. And I would say you've probably eaten about half as much protein as you need to eat for that meal. So four eggs rather than two eggs it's probably going to be a better way to start your day. And that seems like an enormous amount of protein to people, um, if not just enormous amount of food. But um, I, I think this is, again, because protein, food, and fat are often attached, this is a lingering symptom of our low-fat mentality, is that, well, I can't eat all that protein because that has egg yolks and other fatty things with it. And so we've limited our fat intake by limiting our protein intake. And the other, you know, sort of truth of the matter is, is that protein's not as exciting as fat and carbs. You know, you don't get a pork chop with sprinkles on it. Um, when we combine fat and a keto-friendly sweetener, you get tasty things, right? And protein isn't, isn't as much fun as that. So, um, yeah, you do. I, I do think we have problems focusing on protein intake because it isn't as tasty. And also we, there's just a mindset that Americans eat too much protein and, and all of the rest of the baggage that comes with that. Next, let's hear from Francisca Spritzler. Now, Francisca is a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator and a senior writer here at Diet Doctor. And you can find her on Twitter at LowCarbRD. She has a lot of professional and personal experience when it comes to uh, higher protein diets for weight loss. And she's got some interesting perspectives on this. So let's see what Francisca has to say. So Francisca, we hear this term satiety pretty frequently. You feel full, you feel satiated. Tell us what satiety means to you and how you describe it to people. So satiety is feeling full and satisfied after you eat. You're not stuffed. You're no longer hungry. You just feel full, pleasantly full. And um, that's how I explain it to people. That's what you're aiming for. After you finish a meal, you want to feel full and satisfied, but not like you've eaten too much and definitely not like you're still hungry. So uh, different people feel satiated by different things, but overall, we find that eating protein tends to increase your satiety, and that's because protein triggers the release of hormones from your gut that tell your brain that uh, you're full, and it happens about maybe 15 minutes after you start eating with these hormones. At the same time, protein has a greater effect on lowering hunger hormones um, like ghrelin, than either fat or carbohydrates. So those together help you to feel full and satisfied shortly after you start eating so that you can actually end up eating less in a meal and uh, feeling more satisfied. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point about satiety sort of in relationship to the food you're eating because you could say, well, sure, I feel full. I just eat a ton of food and just gorge myself and I'm going to feel full. But that's not what we're getting at. And you described that well, that it's satiety 
sort of for the calories that you're eating. You want to minimize the calories to get the most satiety. And you mentioned protein as being number one. So it's interesting that you can measure satiety by these hormones, these hormones releases, but then studies also can measure it by how someone subjectively says whether they feel full or whether they feel hungry or how much they eat the rest of the day. And does protein sort of hit all three of those markers of satiety? You know, it really does. When they ask people, how full do you feel? How do you feel after eating you know, an egg breakfast versus a bagel breakfast? They feel fuller and those satiety hormones are higher. So they correlate very well. And um, something like fat can make you feel full. Eating fat can make you feel full, but you need to eat a lot of calories. Cat is, cat, fat is very dense and, um, and high in calories. Nothing wrong with fat. It's just in order to feel full, you need to take in a lot more calories than to feel full with the same uh, amount of protein. Yeah, and that's another great point because I'm sure there are so many people who have who have started a low carb diet, who've been doing a low carb diet for years, and say, "Look, I feel so satisfied and full with my meals. I've been able to reduce the amount I eat and the frequency I eat." And from that concept, people think fat is very satiating, and like you said, it can be, but at what calorie cost? So if you are trying to reduce your calories, and we have to admit not everybody is, but if you are trying to reduce your calories, it sounds like protein's the better way to go for satiety per calorie. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. And then what about fiber? We hear a lot about fiber being a satiating uh, nutrient. So how does that factor into this as well? Yes, fiber is definitely satiating for a completely other reason. It stretches your stomach. And when it stretches your stomach, and and some, some fibers actually hold water, which increases the volume in your stomach. It delays the rate at which your stomach empties. It can keep you full longer. Um, so fiber helps in all of those ways, uh, aside from protein. So if you get a meal where you've got protein and fiber and a little bit of fat, because the one thing about protein and fiber is they don't have a lot of calories really. And if you don't eat enough calories at a meal, you'll be very full for a short period of time, but then maybe a few hours later, you'll be hungry. So you do need to fill in some of the calories with fat. So no, they all work together. Yeah, it's an interesting concept because as we talk more about protein, it, it almost leaves the impression that we, we're recommending sort of low fat, higher protein, low fat, because you want to you want to uh, lower the fat as you increase the protein. But it's not quite true. I mean, these terms high, low, it's like hard to imagine what they really mean. But if you're reducing your fat from 80% of your calories to 60% of your calories, that's still not necessarily a low fat diet by any means. So when you say sort of high protein, um, or high fat, what are some of the numbers that circulate in your brain that people can sort of help understand what it means to be high in those macronutrients? Yeah, it's hard when we go for percentages because percentages are based on calories. So someone who's eating very few calories will have a different percentage. But I would say a high protein diet would be a diet where you're eating more than two grams per kilogram of your ideal body weight or your goal body weight. Um, if you're overweight or you're if you're at the weight you want to be, it's the uh, two grams per kilogram of your current weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be considered a high protein diet. And anything between 1.2 and two grams, we consider kind of a moderate diet. Sure, on the higher side as you get to those upper levels, but uh, that's and then as far as fat goes, the percentage um, again will really be based on calories because if you're trying to lose weight, your percentage of of 
fat, some of it will be coming from your body fat, right? You're going to be getting some fat from your body fat. So you won't be eating necessarily a super high fat diet. You'll be eating, you know, higher protein uh, than the typical. Um, the average person probably eats maybe 15 to 20% of their calories from protein and maybe a gram per kilogram, perhaps everyone's different. So you on a higher protein diet, you'd be eating more protein than that. And then filling in the rest with carbs and fat, depending on how many carbs you tolerate and how much fat you like and what your, your weight loss goals are. Yeah. So you made the differentiation between um, a moderate protein and a, and a high protein diet with the cutoffs being that two uh, grams per kilogram per day. And there's no firm and absolute definition, but that's a definition we use at Diet Doctor. But I think the implication is important. So does that mean above two milligrams is too high? And, and or sorry, above two grams per day is too high and sort of like dangerous? Or is that still acceptable, just a different definition? That's a great question. You'll probably get some different answers from <laughs> depending who you ask. But I think over two grams is still fine. If you have functioning kidneys, it's fine to go more than two grams. Uh, bodybuilders eat much more than that for years and, and are just fine. Um, but, you know, you don't have to go that high. You can get good results around two or, or a little less, um, depending who you are and what your goals are. So I don't think that higher protein is bad and harmful unless you have a kidney issue or perhaps another medical uh, condition that your doctor says you need to watch your protein. But that's pretty rare. Most people can tolerate pretty high amounts of protein. What your body doesn't need, it just gets rid of. Yeah. And that's, and that's a hard, that's what's what makes it sort of hard to make general recommendations, right? Cause everybody's different with their level of physical activity, um, and what their goals are, whether their goal is body composition or weight loss or, um, improving diabetes or metabolic disease, which more protein can be beneficial for all of those, depending on where you start. So if someone's starting at, you know, 15% of their calories and they go to 25% of their calories, that's, that's a high protein diet for them maybe. So when someone's yes. making a change like that, what do you think some of the, the um, barriers or some of the struggles they might have in increasing their protein intake? Yeah, just the, it depends where they're coming from. Like maybe people who've already been like on a keto or, or low carb, high fat diet have some misconceptions about protein and then it might be dangerous or it might kick them out of ketosis or raise their insulin levels. So I, I just try to reassure them that that really isn't going to happen. And especially as you, if you do this very gradually and don't go from, let's say if you're eating 60 grams of protein to 130 grams, no, you do it incrementally and really notice how you feel. And if you, if it makes you feel better, test your blood sugar, because I think a lot of people are under the impression if I eat protein, it's going to turn to sugar. If I don't need it, that, that really doesn't happen. Um, it, your body will make protein, I'm sorry, your body will make glucose if it needs to from, from protein and from, um, from other sources, but your body also can use those amino acids from protein for other things. So it's not going to raise your blood sugar. There's a lot of, um, I don't want to get into too much technical, but there's a lot of, um, uh, balance that's going on within your body at all times to prevent that. So I would say, um, just incrementally increase maybe by, you know, 10 grams, 20 grams a day. Um, not, and then kind of just see how you feel and you can find the level that's right for you. We have a big range. 1.2 to two grams is a large range and you can be anywhere in there and, and you can 
you know, change from one day to the next. It's, it's very flexible. You don't have to stick. I think carb intake maybe is a little, you know, for people who have diabetes, they have to be a little more within a certain range uh, that they don't go above with protein. You know, it's really up to you. Yeah. So when someone's trying to increase their protein intake, what are some of your favorite tips, go-to foods, you know, meals, ways to include it? What do, what are your tips to help people um, increase their protein intake? I'd say start with breakfast. Breakfast is really important. I think a lot of people are only eating a couple of eggs for breakfast and thinking that's enough protein. I'd say at least three eggs for breakfast or, you know, if three eggs sounds like too much for you. How about two eggs and sausage or two eggs and, um, I don't know, smoked salmon or whatever you like to eat in the morning, yogurt. Um, making your breakfast, that first meal of the day, have enough protein is, is where it starts, I think. And then maybe just eating a little more protein at your other meals, uh, whether that means, you know, choosing leaner meats, which are higher in protein for the most part than fattier meats, or just really focusing on the protein um, and then, you know, maybe adding the, the fats afterwards and and really concentrating on protein, I would say. And in a way that works for you, if you're not a meat eater, let's say if you're a vegetarian, um, then dairy is excellent. Dairy, I already mentioned eggs, but yogurt, cottage cheese, Greek yogurt, cottage cheese are great ways to uh, increase your protein intake. But if you like meat, um, meat is one of the best sources of protein, meat and seafood. Seafood is actually very high and, uh, and gives you a lot of protein in a relatively small amount. So just Increasing your protein portions a little bit at a time, I think, is a way that you could bump up your protein intake pretty quickly. Yeah, no, no. I actually haven't done this, but my guess is if you were to Google, how do I increase my protein intake, you're going to get all these ads about whey protein shakes and protein powders. And some people would say, oh, you should totally stay away from those. Just get it from real food. And some people would say, oh, no, you can totally use those powders, you know, in the right situation if it works for you. How do you sort of advise people about the use of protein powders? Yeah, it's very individual. And I think they can be very helpful for some people occasionally who have problems meeting their protein needs. If you really get too full and you're unable to meet your protein needs, then having a whey shake now and then is fine. Or if you're trying to build a lot of muscle mass and you're working out a lot, then whey protein is very quickly absorbed and it's great for replenishing amino acids. But day to day, really just focusing on real food, whole food rather than whey protein is better. You also get a lot more nutrients. Whey protein is very high in protein and very low in everything else. But when you eat high protein foods, you get a lot of vitamins and minerals. And um, let's face it, whey protein by itself doesn't taste that good. It is very, I would say it's very satiating initially because it's so high in protein, but it doesn't make you feel as though you've had a true meal. So I would say use it, you know, occasionally if you need to, but for as a day-to-day -day thing, I would say just focus on getting your protein from food. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned the, the satiety impact of whey protein versus food. And I think that we should go back to that for a second, because there is a difference between sort of short-term satiety, I'm full from my meal and long-term satiety. I can go, you know, six, 10, whatever, however many hours until my next meal. Um, so how does that differentiate, do you think from, um, you know, whether it's fiber or fat or protein or what's making up the majority of your meal and your, your satiating nutrients? So whey protein is going to give you an immediate sense of satiety. Very quickly, you'll feel very full. 
but it's not going to last that long because it is pure protein. There's nothing else that comes along with it that can help you to feel full, like fiber, like, you know, a little bit of fat, the vitamins, minerals, everything work together to help you feel full and satisfied. That's what food does. That's why we eat food. Not that whey protein is bad, but it doesn't have those components. So if you do have whey protein and that's it, a whey protein shake, you'll probably be hungry very soon after. And that's what bodybuilders do. They're hungry pretty much all day. They're not just having whey protein, but after a whey protein shake, that gives them immediate sense of satiety, but they'll be hungry shortly after. So I think having all the components together, a mixed meal doesn't have to be really high in fat or carbohydrate. You know, protein is still something you want to focus on, but all of those things together can help you feel satisfied long-term and help you eat less overall during the course of the day. Yeah. And that's a good point. You know, I, I, fall into the trap that I, I hate and I, I say we shouldn't do. And we talk about protein and fat and carbs and fiber, but we don't eat that. We eat food and it's a combination of all of them with different percentages in the food. So I think that was a good point that you made that, that protein isolate, just protein isolate is very different than the protein in a steak or protein in chicken or even protein in tofu or legumes or something because it comes with other nutrients. Yeah. So that's, that's a critical point. Um, so you recently wrote a guide about top protein foods that we have at Diet Doctor. Was there anything you um, were surprised about or you think some people would be surprised about learning the different protein percentages and content in the different foods you reviewed? So it was very interesting to see that sometimes foods will have about the same amount of protein you know, in a serving, but they will have a lower protein percentage, meaning there's a lot more calories you get the same amount of protein, let's say 25, 26 grams in one cut of steak and a very fatty cut of steak or uh, bacon or something. It might have almost the same amount of protein, but it's got less protein per calorie because there's so much fat that comes with it. So that was interesting. And, and just learning about, you know, chicken skin doesn't really add a whole lot of calories. Chicken skin actually keeps the protein percentage pretty high actually a little bit of protein in the chicken skin in addition to fat. So if you like chicken skin, I would say continue eating it. You're still going to get a great amount of protein. And uh, I think it just tastes better for a lot of people. Maybe not everyone loves chicken skin, but for those who do, definitely we're not saying go the leanest protein as possible. We're saying enjoy food. These are the amounts of protein that, that you'll get. And, uh, and just try to make good choices and try not to get anything that's just really, really low in protein or has a lot of additives like in the processed meats. Such a great point though about, about needing to still enjoy your food and enjoy the taste because I know when it comes to you know a skinless, boneless chicken breast versus a chicken thigh with the skin on, there's no question. I'm going to really enjoy that chicken thigh and I might eat the chicken breast because I think it's good for me or something, but I'm not going to enjoy it quite as much. So tell us about sort of how you eat, how you see that in your personal journey with, um, with what you eat and your protein intake. Okay. So I've been doing low carb for about 10 years and I started before the keto craze really got popular. It was in 2011. So it was really low carb, um, and pretty moderate to high protein. I wasn't really counting my protein, never really did. But over the years, I've learned that getting enough protein is really important for me to feel full and to maintain muscle mass. And especially as I'm getting older, I'm in my mid fifties now. And I'm telling you, getting enough protein is key to maintain your muscles and your bones and just staying strong and functional as you get older. So protein is 
um, really important to me. And I, I would say there's, I get over a hundred grams a day, every day. I don't, I wasn't tracking until recently just because we're doing these experiments at diet doctor to, to see how much we're getting. And I found that I'm definitely getting over hundred grams a day and I eat a lot of fish. Um, I, I actually do quite a bit of canned fish. It's really easy. And I, I want people to understand that wild caught salmon, I mean, canned salmon is always wild caught. It's, uh, it's a great convenient way to eat. I have it for breakfast sometimes. Um, and, uh, I just make sure to prioritize protein at every meal, but I still eat fat and a few carbs. So, um, yeah, like a Cobb salad is fantastic. You've got everything there that you need. You've got quite a bit of protein. You've got fiber in the avocado, you've got the vegetables, um, and you've got fat in the, in the meats and the avocado. And, uh, that's, that's one of my go-to lunches. Yeah. So, and another great point that you made about the protein needs increasing as we age. And it seems like the biggest challenge might be for women specifically. It's a little stereotypical, but we had, I had an interview with, um, Lucia Ronica, uh, in the past, a professor at Stanford. And she talked about her study, um, how she investigated the diet fit study and women really had the hardest time increasing their protein and their fat intake, uh, much more so than men. So I think it, as the protein requirements increase, and if women have a harder time with that, we really sort of need to direct our message towards that. And that's where, so you as a personal example can be really helpful in some of your your tips. So what, what do you say to women who say, oh, there's no way I can eat 100 grams of protein. I'm just going to stick with my, you know, four ounces of chicken on my salad, and I'm fine with that and my one egg in the morning, and that's okay. Like, what, What's your advice to them? Now, I would tell them, just try it. Really try and see how much fuller you feel and how you end up eating less. Uh, I know that some people who are doing experiments um, um, on our team are noticing when they're tracking that they end up eating less calories. They're not, you know, they just can't eat that much anymore. It's, it's effortless. So that is one bonus. And then just, you know, as women get older, we definitely want to maintain our muscle mass. That helps to keep our metabolism going. As I said, it keeps us strong and functional. And so I would say those are the trade-offs and eating higher protein foods can be delicious. I think we get used to, oh, we need lots of fat. You can still have the fat, but just try to get that protein up there. I think Greek yogurt and cottage cheese are great. If you tolerate dairy, those are great ways to get it in for women and women. I don't know. I can't say all women like those foods, but a lot of people I know would find that easier to do than to, you know, try to get it all through meat. Um, nothing wrong with meat. If you like it, enjoy it. But uh, there's, there's so many different protein sources, and that's why you know, we have that guide so you can kind of see how much protein you're getting. And you can pick what you like. Um, even if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, you can find protein sources that are uh, great for you. Yeah, so what, what's your advice to vegetarians and vegans for how they can get adequate protein? Vegetarians, it's much easier because, again, those same protein sources I suggested, the dairy and the eggs, the vegetarian can do that. Vegan, it's a little trickier. Um, vegans who eat soy have it a lot easier because soy is a complete protein and it actually provides quite a bit of protein for few carbs. Now, for people who are a little more on a liberal low-carb diet, lots of legumes uh, can give you protein. And, and then combining like the legumes and nuts and seeds uh, can give you a complete protein as well. So, um, but yeah, it's just really pro for vegans, prioritizing protein rather than grains and starchy vegetables, because those really have very little protein. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of filling for some people, but they don't provide a lot of satiety and definitely not a lot of protein per calorie. 
Now, next we have a real treat because the next interview is with Dr. Andreas Einfeld. Dr. Einfeld is a Swedish physician specializing in family medicine, and he's the founder and CEO of Diet Doctor, helping it grow from a local Swedish blog, Kostoktorn, up to the largest low-carb and keto website in the world. And throughout this, his time as CEO, growing this company and growing the message, he, he has been hyper-focused on helping people make healthy weight loss simple, making low-carb and keto easy for people to implement to dramatically change their lives. And now helping give other options with higher amounts of protein to see if that's even a better option for them. So let's hear what Dr. Einfeld has to say about the role of high protein in this whole concept of healthy weight loss. Well, Andreas, it's a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk to you on our own Diet Doctor podcast. Now, today specifically, we're sort of talking about this issue of protein. And Diet Doctor has started creating more content geared towards higher protein diets. So I wanted to get your impression. What is sort of the motivation behind this that, that, that inspired you to do this? Well, I guess, you know, it's the whole team. Uh, but I think that, you know, what we try to do is trying to empower people to improve their health and it's not really about you know low carb necessarily it's about what works right and i think the thing that makes me quite interested in in higher protein diets is that uh, more and more there's more and more scientific support to, to say that that may be a really powerful intervention that's really helpful for a lot of people and then it becomes really interesting to explore that you know what does the science say what are people's experiences? What do people enjoy? And what are, are the results that they get? And if this is uh, something really powerful for a lot of people, then can we develop quality content and tools that help people do it in a simpler way with a better result? Then that's the win for everybody, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Now, of course, whenever you talk about high protein, people are going to have different perceptions of what that means. And some people are going to think of, you know, bodybuilders in the gym chugging whey protein shakes and eating six meals of chicken breast all day long. So, I mean, what do you have in your mind when you think of high protein for the general public to help with metabolic health and weight loss? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it is really interesting. And we're, we're working with this now with, you know, you and, and Dr. Ted Nyman and other people but trying to make these helpful visualizations about what does it mean and what kind of foods are we talking about uh, like you said chicken breasts skinless uh, and broccoli and whey protein and egg whites that's at the very extreme end of, of the ultra high protein levels and, and and i think that is something that mostly interests fitness people who have this sort of well maybe they're body, bodybuilders or they want to win fitness competitions it's not really, I think, something that most people would want to do long term. So when I'm talking about or when we're talking about high protein, sure, that, that is an ultra high protein alternative for people who want it. But there are many, many options that are more kind of uh, uh, attractive, I think, for, for normal people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think a lot of the content that, that we're creating is going to address that in a very user friendly way. I mean, things like, you know, ribeye or, or, or eggs or, or just vegetables or, or, or even beans that are high in protein, uh, you know, dairy, cheese, all kinds of things, uh, certainly fish and seafood, 
there are many, many great options to eat that, you know, can be made super tasty. Right. Right. Now, before we get too much into the protein, which we'll certainly talk about more, one of the things I really like about working with you is you, you like to take a step back and see things from the sort of the first order perspectives, which is really important from either a scientific perspective or a business perspective. And one of the things that you brought up was the first order principle of why we eat, which I thought was so interesting because it's something most people just take for granted. You just eat. You don't even think about why you eat. So when you did this sort of deeper dive on the first order principle of why we eat, what did you come up with? Yeah, I think for, for tricky things, uh, thinking from first principles can be really powerful. I mean, it's it's quite, you know, time consuming, but but it's worth it for for, you know, when we talk about these kind of fundamental things. So uh, why we eat? Yeah, well, I think there are two reasons why any animal would eat, and and that is you need nutrients to build your body, and then you need energy to to run it. In a way, you could say it's it's materials to you know, uh, build the machine or the car, whatever, and then they, there is the fuel to run it, right? So I think that's fundamentally why, why we eat. That's what we need to eat for, those two things. We need, we need the building blocks to build our bodies, repair them, uh, grow them as needed, and then we need the, the, the fuel to, to walk around, to think, to, to have all these processes in our bodies work, right? Yeah, and uh, then you can ask, okay, what what is that? Uh, what what is the uh, nutrients and what is the the fuel? And and for nutrients, we know it, it it is basically the essential nutrients, right? And then we have protein, which is sort of the big the big piece of that. And then you have essential fatty acids, uh, minerals, and vitamins. And then for for fuel, you have primarily uh, carbs and fat. Uh, sure, you can to some extent you can you can uh, use protein as fuel or alcohol, but but most of it is going to be uh, carbs and fat. And looking at the nutrient part of it, then the interesting thing is that protein really is the big thing there. Uh, if you look at the amounts, probably you know three quarters of the essential nutrients you need every day measured in grams is, is protein. A little bit of fatty acids, even even less uh, minerals and very, very tiny amounts uh, of vitamins. And the, the really fascinating thing, especially Ted Nyman, who, who, uh, Dr. Nyman, who, who brought this to my attention, but if you focus on eating high-protein foods like meat, fish, vegetables, etc., you tend to get all the other minor things in the same package. So if you po- focus on a, on a high-protein diet and you eat real ho- whole foods, you actually tend to get all of the essential nutrients that a human needs in the same foods. So I think that's super interesting. Yeah, it's this concept that nature knew what it was doing. Nature knew what to provide uh-huh, yeah. for, for people to, to get what they needed. There's also this super interesting idea of, of, of protein leverage and, you know, the way that our modern f- food supply, uh, sort of industrial food supply, sort of dilutes the nutrition in the food by, you know, first, of course, agriculture with a lot of uh, carbohydrates, but more recently, refined carbs, refined fats, added, you know, oils, sugar, flour. This is kind of 
in a way, um, as it's often called, you know, empty calories, right? Mm -hmm. There's no nutrition in sugar. There's no nutrition in soybean oil or uh, flour. Basically, you know, refined white flour is almost all starch, almost nothing else. Okay, a little bit of protein, but but not a lot, right? Right. Um, so you basically dilute the protein and the, the nutrients by adding that into the processed, sort of ultra-processed food supply. And what, what happens is that people have to eat more to get the same amount of nutrition. And there's been a lot of studies on this in animals and also in humans saying that, you know, if you dilute the protein, people eat more energy until they get the protein that they absolutely need. And that's what's called uh, protein leverage. And it could explain uh, part of the obesity epidemic. And then you look back and say, okay, hunter-gatherer is what, you know, our ancestors, what did they eat? What are we gen genetically adapted to? Maybe they ate 30% protein on average. And now we're down to, you know, 12, 13, 14%. You basically have to eat two to three times more energy to get the same nutrition as our ancestors got, right? Well, that could explain a lot. Right. So that brings us sort of to the, the, the modern times and the dilemma that, w that we're in from a, a worldwide health perspective of this obesity epidemic. So one of the things that higher protein diets have been shown to do is to help with weight loss. But as we know, not all weight loss is the same. You can lose fat mass, you can lose lean body mass, and you can lose in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. So when it comes to this concept of healthy weight loss, what are the factors that you think are most important? And as a follow-up then, and how does protein fit into achieving those concepts of healthy weight loss? One fundamental thing um, is that in order to achieve weight loss in a sustainable, enjoyable way, you have to uh, feel satiety. You, you can't be hungry all the time. Nobody wants to be hungry all the time. And nobody, uh, I think, well, almost nobody is able to do that. I know I wouldn't be yeah. able to do that. So in order to achieve weight loss, you really have to focus on eating foods that bring you a lot of satiety with not a lot of uh, empty calories, not a lot of basically a high satiety value per calorie, mm -hmm. if you will. Tying that back to protein, that tends to be high protein foods uh, in general. That is, uh, you know, protein is the most satiating macronutrient, more so than carbohydrates, more so than fat. And it also comes with all these other nutrients, uh, usually. So then you can eat less food and still be uh, still feel full, still feel happy about it. Uh, another bonus is, uh, which is also important, I think, for sustainable, healthy weight loss is you want to lose uh, fat mass, perhaps excess fat mass, but you want to maintain uh, the lean mass, the muscle mass, the bone mass. You need all these nutrients to, in, in, you know, your internal organs and, and everything. And that's what you get also with the pro high protein foods and the high nutrition foods. I think it fits together quite well. Other other aspects of, of healthy weight loss, of course, is you know you want to be metabolically healthy. You want to have a you know good good health markers, blood pressure, blood sugar, cholesterol profile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you go on a higher protein diet that is uh, doesn't have excessive amounts of of carbohydrates or, or or added fats, then 
uh, that tends to be helpful for that as well. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. The 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 sort of the different layers. One is is satiety, like you said, because any diet, even if you're eating, you know, getting adequate protein, if you're overeating carbs, overeating fat, overeating calories, then all of a sudden the high high benefits of high protein diet are basically going to go away because of caloric excess. But because of the satiety, it's more difficult to do. And then you also can get metabolic benefits of studies have shown better insulin sensitivity and glucose regulation. So there, there are all these benefits to eating higher protein diets, yet we hear a lot of concerns about higher protein diets from, you could say, the longevity community or longevity experts that too much protein is connected with decreased longevity or lower lifespans, shorter lifespans. So how do you sort of combine those two to say, well, on the one hand, we see these benefits, but on the other hand, these are, there are these longevity concerns? Yeah, I think that uh, that is a super interesting topic uh, to discuss. I think, uh, well, first of all, I guess we don't really have high quality data, certainly not in in humans, uh, to say whether this is actually uh, correct or not. But I, I guess what uh, what people who are really interested in longevity uh, think about is that protein tends to stimulate this uh, nutrient sensor called mTOR in the in the cells and stimulate uh, cell division. And you know, if you sort of which makes sense, you know, because it's 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 building blocks for for building cells, um, and if you stimulate that too much, you get more cell division, and that would theoretically perhaps uh, speed up um, aging and the risk of of cancer and other things you certainly don't want. Okay. I think one one uh, one thing that sort of points in the other direction is, well, this nutrient sensor, this mTOR. And this sort of cell division is also very much affected by the available energy. So if you eat a higher protein diet, but that leads to eating less energy, then you get the opposite effect from that factor, right? You eat less energy, you have less stimulation through that pathway. So those things kind of pull in in, uh, in opposite directions. And, and what's the end result? Well, it's it's very hard to tease out. Another factor is that depends on what you what you eat a high protein diet for. Let's say you you, you uh, go on a higher protein diet because you want to lose weight, uh, you want to reverse perhaps type two diabetes, etc. We know that those health conditions lead to accelerated aging. Like if you have type two diabetes or obesity then you have uh, quite a lot of increased risk of cancer, of heart disease, of Alzheimer's, etc. In a way, it's like it's an accelerated aging because all of these common sort of diseases of aging comes, come sooner. And, and what you have is sort of a situation where you have too much energy, you're taking in too much energy into the body, too much stimulation uh, for, for these pathways. So in one way, you're reversing that. If you go on a high protein diet, you eat less. Now you're losing weight. Now you're reducing your blood sugar. Now you're getting away from this situation where you're overstimulating these these nutrient sensors. So, yeah, it's it's hard to know what the what the end result is. But but it seems to me that at least if you're if you're fixing things like you're losing weight, you're normalizing your blood pressure, you're normalizing your blood sugar. Now you're getting away from a from a sort of a, a state where, where you have an increased risk of many diseases, uh, in a way, it's an accelerated aging. Then, that's that should be a good thing. 
another thing is that if you look at what humans are genetically adapted to, might be uh, a protein level of, of somewhere between 20 and 50% uh, from hunter-gatherer data, and probably averaging somewhere around 30%. And today we eat far, far, far less. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a risky thing. And of course, we have this obesity and, and diabetes epidemics. I think in a, in a way, you're, you're playing it a bit more safe if you're at least within the sort of evolutionary range. Yeah. Uh, maybe you don't want to go to the high end, but you should at least be above the bottom of the evolutionary range. Otherwise, you know, uh, that might be risky. For example, um, we know that if people eat less protein than what is sort of normal for humans to do, then you end up with a low uh, muscle mass, you end up with low bone mass, you end up, especially as you age, with a risk of, of frailty and, and a risk of actually not being able to to look after yourself in a good way. You might might end up uh, in an assisted living facil- facility or, or, you know, fall and break your hip or, or something that could really, really impact the, the quality of your life uh, towards the the final decades uh, of your life and yeah i don't think that that is what anybody wants so plus a, a third thing is uh, that we don't really have i mean this whole longevity thing is is sort of theoretical and we don't really have data from anything else than sort of lower level animals if you will uh fruit flies worms uh maybe some lower primates we don't have data, to my knowledge, from any sort of predator-level animal that habitually eats, or you know, during evolution, habitually eats a higher protein diet. So, would the same thing hold true for an animal like that, or like uh, like humans? It's uh, I think uh, unclear. And and since there are so many drawbacks from eating a low low protein diet, I'm not sure. Personally, that I would would want to risk it for that very, very theoretical possible benefit. Yeah, such a good answer with so many different components to it. But one point, like you were mentioning, is how do you extrapolate fruit fly and mouse data to humans when they're not adapted to maybe the high, higher protein diet like we are? And that's such an important point that, that that's a big leap to take that so many people are taking. So then you say, okay, but what about the human data? And again, it goes down to sort of nutritional epidemiology, observational studies where people who are eating more protein were also exercising less and smoking more and drinking more alcohol and other unhealthy habits, which just doesn't help us, doesn't help inform us what we should eat. So that's such an important concept. And then the other point you mentioned about the frailty as we age, about the importance of muscle mass, the concept of health span versus longevity. And again, fruit flies and mice, they don't have to worry so much about health span compared to longevity like we do as people. So I like how you really pointed out those important nuances that sort of get lost in this whole concept of protein stimulates growth and is therefore bad, so don't eat it. And that's, you know, that's the simple message that we hear, but it's far more detailed and nuanced. So so I think that was a very important yeah, well, answer. I think you, there is a lot of uh, nuance here. Uh, for example, um, I mean, if if you take it too far, I think if you if you're only well, too far, if you're only interested in in longevity and nothing else, maybe you want to keep protein on the low end, maybe. But there are drawbacks to that for sure. Like you're not going to be 
feel as full. You're not going to have the same muscle mass. You're not going to have the same bone mass. It might be risky if you fall. It might turn ugly if you're in, on the older side. And yeah, tricky. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think uh, from my perspective, at least, a, a smart way to think of it is at least to be safe, un- un- unless you have very specific goals uh, with what you're doing, I think it's safe to at least stay in the evolutionary range, you know, in in the range that humans are adapted uh, to eat. And that would be sort of 20 to 50% protein, I think, uh, from the data we have. Uh, I wouldn't want to go lower than that unless you really have some specific goals with what you're doing. So now if someone is eating a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet and doing very well, losing weight, uh, health markers are improving, and their protein is right around sort of 18, 20%, um, but they're perfectly happy with their, their progress, would you say to that person that they should increase their protein in general? Well, you know, if, if people are healthy and happy, uh, you know, I have no objections. You know, people, that sounds great to me. Uh, but maybe they want to try it to see. Maybe they will feel even better. I don't know. Yeah. It'd be worth the test. Right. Maybe go to 25, see what happens. Yeah, I think that's it, a good point. To be an interesting experiment, just like people probably experimented with lower carb and to see how they felt and adjusted their fat intake to see how they felt. The same can be true for protein to adjust it to see how you feel. But now you had a personal experience recently of, of dramatically increasing your protein intake. Um, so I'm curious what you noticed, both you know good and bad, and what you think the average person will encounter as they start to increase their protein, whether it's for weight loss or metabolic health, whatever the case may be, what they may experience from a good perspective or a challenge perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've always had a decent protein intake but yeah I'm, I'm i'm testing as an experiment just to go way higher to see see what happens so maybe usually i i you know might have eaten you know 100 or 120 grams or something i'm a big guy i'm six foot seven um and now i'm eating more than 200 you know 250 grams so quite a lot um yeah it's been an interesting experiment i, I think that Certainly notice more more satiety uh, with higher protein, um, effortlessly losing more body fat than I'm used to. Um, so I'm probably at my lowest body fat now uh, compared to before. Even even eating eating a little bit more carbohydrates than I usually do, I I I, I trend towards a lower body fat. Um, and also interestingly measured a, a bunch of health markers, including, you know, insulin levels, actually the l- lowest insulin, fasting insulin levels I've uh, ever had, uh, even though, even though I eat, you know, instead of 20 grams of carbs, I might eat, you know, 70. So that's pretty interesting. Do you think that's from pure caloric reduction? Yeah. And, and, and a lower, um, lower fat mass. So I think you, you, uh, if you lower your fat mass, you tend to lower your insulin resistance or, you know, in my case, maybe you'd call it become even more insulin sensitive, and then then um, you don't need as high, or you you could get by with an even lower fasting insulin level because you're so insulin sensitive. That's my best explanation, I think. That's my guess. Yeah, and uh, and and I also think that uh, you know it's an interesting experiment. It's more flexible in the way you you have more foods to choose from. Um, more flexible with carbohydrates, you know, berries. I don't I don't eat you know 
refined carbohydrates, but I eat uh, even more vegetables, berries, some fruit, etc. Yeah. So that's uh, that's an, I enjoy that. Um, it's it's been a good experiment, but I I think I will probably end up with something in between long term. And what do you think the challenge will be for a lot of people as they start to embark on this and say, "Oh, it sounds good. I'm gonna I'm going to increase my protein and see what effects it'll have on my health." What do you think some people are going to encounter that may be a, a stumbling block? That's a good question. I think many people will find it enjoyable. Uh, some people might, you know, if they eat more protein and lower fat. You might get, uh, might feel hungry more often, especially if you're losing a lot of body fat and you get down to a lower body fat percentage. Then uh, I think as you get leaner, you tend to need to or want to eat more often. Mm-hmm. And if you're you have a, a slightly bigger store of body fat, at least that's my experience, and and I think that of of other people, uh, it becomes becomes harder to do longer fasts, for example. I mean, I still do 68 many days, but yeah, um, yeah, I think I had an easier time with it, even easier, <laughs> at least before than I do now. I enjoy my, I enjoy my lunch a lot <laughs> after <laughs> 16 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that you're, we're talking about how people can increase their protein, eat more protein, the benefits of more protein. Uh, but Diet Doctor is sort of known as a low-carb and keto website. Uh, so does this change the structure of who Diet Doctor is? I think it broadens it a bit. Um, certainly, we aim to be the best source uh, in the world for low-carb and keto diets still. And I think they clearly have a, a good role. There's a lot of good scientific support that they are uh, helpful for a lot of situations like losing weight, like improving your metabolic health, uh, epilepsy, PCOS, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a lot of people like that way of eating. So I, I think what we're, what we're doing is just broadening uh, and, and offering another option for people who might be interested. Also, I think uh, actually that uh, even though um, many of the studies on, on low-carb uh, or keto nutrition, they actually tend to be a bit higher in protein yeah, so it's a little bit hard to tease out what causes it, if it's the lowering of, of carbohydrates or, or raising the protein, what is causing the positive effects. But there are also some studies uh, showing that maybe, maybe a high-protein ketogenic diet could actually be the most effective approach, at least slightly, slightly more so. I mean... You can go on a, on a higher protein diet and be quite flexible between uh, fat and carbs. That seems to work relatively well for, for, for a lot of people or most people. But maybe tending towards the lower end could still be more effective when it comes to reducing uh, hunger and get the maximum satiety per calorie and, and just get to your absolute leanest if that's what you want or, 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 or top metabolic health sort of. I find that quite interesting that maybe there's still there's still uh, an edge for a sort of a, a keto high protein approach might be the the very most effective one that we know of so far. 
Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great point. When you when you go back and you look at the majority of the randomized controlled trials for low-carb interventions, comparing it to some other diet, the focus has been on reducing the carbs, produces all these great benefits for weight loss and metabolic health, blood sugar control, et cetera. But when you look at them, like you said, most of them reduce the carbs and increase the protein. So it's really a dual intervention. So like you're saying, maybe that dual intervention is the most beneficial for people. And the other thing you mentioned was maybe a lot of people enjoy eating a keto diet. And that's so important because that's something that I think we don't focus on enough. If you don't enjoy the foods you're eating, if you don't enjoy your meals, the chances of sticking with it long-term are, are, are much slimmer than if you do enjoy it. So as, as people increase their protein, do you think maybe some of that enjoyment may go down as they try and focus on increasing protein and reducing fat? Or do you think a lot of people are going to find it equally as, as appealing? No, I think that's a that's an excellent point that you know fat is is very flavorful and and uh, high fat foods can be very enjoyable uh, and if you if you reduce both carbs and fat and you end up with you know skinless chicken breasts and broccoli it's not a very you know exciting diet to be on it's actually pretty much the opposite of it in a way you could say that you know humans are drawn to high energy diets we're drawn to high fat and high carb diets you could think of pizza or ice cream or donuts or potato chips these are the sort of chocolate you know the the really really craveable foods that that a lot of people struggle perhaps with with you know avoiding even if they want to for for some health goal then the, they're so tasty and so attractive, right? So in a way, humans are, are kind of hardwired to search for these high-calorie foods because probably that's, you know, back in the days, would have been great to, to load up on calories and, and survive the next uh, famine. Of course, today, that famine never comes and, and you know, those foods are available 24-7 anywhere and we end up with a, a wholly different sort of problems. But to back, back, back to what you were we're asking, uh, yes, I think if you go on a very, very high protein kind of fitness diet that is low in carbs, low in fat, it tends to be uh, quite boring yeah. uh, for a lot of people. And it's, it's great to have different options, I think. You can have you know, different, different levels of, of carb reduction depending on, on people's needs and, and preferences. You can have different protein levels. And people can just experiment with what they what they enjoy and and what leads to their their goals that they have and and what is most enjoyable to them and then uh, at diet doctor we can try to to supply a, a range of options that that you know can be uh, great for for the majority of people so that the majority of people can find something that that suits their tastes and and preferences and and achieves their their goals Yes, yeah, so I think this has been a really good discussion about higher protein and where it fits into people's uh, people's goals and people's lifestyles. So what are you most excited about, about how, how Diet Doctor can help people achieve their health goals? What do we have and what is coming that you think is, is most going to be most impactful for people? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this sort of broadening our, of our arsenal in a way to maybe help some people 
and probably some people who've been doing low carbon keto for a long time uh, and you know they had good results but not quite getting the results they want and they might have been struggling you know to lose the final i don't know 10 20 30 40 pounds whatever it might be maybe go to a kind of super keto diet in a way that is higher in protein and that can be for some people really helpful to to kickstart that that progress again and and, and reach uh those goals and maybe some people will also enjoy it more somewhat higher even you know if you may not have to go crazy to to uh to achieve what you want but then then also some people may want to take it to the extreme and see what kind of extreme results can they get and i mean i think that's that's interesting too um for some people then i think we have a lot of tools uh that we're developing now we have these personalized meal plans personalized food recommendations coming up more and more and also i I, i'm super excited about something that we're uh, developing now where we can kind of visualize how different foods lie on on a spectrum of of you know protein level carb level energy density fiber level etc and you can you can just visualize how different food choices can have different effects for you And, and often it's like you might not even know that different cuts of meat have very different levels of 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 protein percentage in them for example right and that uh or 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 different kinds of dairy like for me i mean greek yogurt who knew that there was so much protein in, in it i i didn't know and if you choose a, a version that is not too high in fat then it's it's amazing how much protein uh, you can get without much much energy and it's it's delicious so i think we can help people find new favorite foods that they will love and that will help them reach their goals in in a really enjoyable way so that is one of the things i'm most excited about now the the sort of an interactive tool that we're going to develop there i'm pretty sure that it's going to be something i would love to use well i think that's a great way to conclude this compilation podcast on higher protein diets and how they fit into the whole picture of healthy healthy weight loss. As you heard from Dr. Einfeld, it's about making it easy, about giving people options and helping them find what is right, helping you find what is right for you, not just to lose weight, but to lose weight in a healthy manner that is sustainable and enjoyable for the long term. And as you've heard from a satiety perspective, from a metabolic health perspective, from a science perspective, from a clinical experience perspective, protein plays a critical role for that concept of healthy weight loss that's enjoyable and and safe for the long term. So hopefully this was a really helpful uh, tour with three different experts to give you the perspectives on why you should consider eating in what we call an adequate protein diet, which is somewhere in the 20 to 35% of calories or the 1.2 to 2.0 grams per kilo per day. There are different ways you can calculate it. Or by following our recipes and our meal plans at Diet Doctor, we're going to make sure that they include an adequate amount of protein. So by following adequate protein diets and how that can impact healthy weight loss, metabolic health, and help you stay on your course for a lifelong health journey. Because it's not about losing weight for today, next week, next month. It's about what you do for the rest of your life, improving your health span, improving your quality of life. 
So I hope this was helpful. Please give us comments, give us reviews. Uh, it really helps us understand how to provide better material for you and helps other people find our message if it's helpful. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. And thanks for joining us on the Diet Doctor podcast.